Coming to you from North Central Ohio, we share with you the voice of the Nazarene, a week-by-week venture into the Word of God sponsored by the Bucyrus, Ohio Church of the Nazarene. We join our pastor, Reverend Ray LaSalle, and the voice of the Nazarene. Yes. Good morning. Good morning to our live stream viewers, too, right? And we pick up some new ones almost every week of the year, and they're part of our, our gathering. I'd like for you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2, and I want to pick up the reading in verse 8. Back in the book of John, chapter 12, verse 32, Christ had said, if I be lifted up, talking about Calvary, the cross, his death, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me, the great draw. Now shepherds are found here in this great second chapter of Luke. There were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill, Toward men. And verse 16, and they came with haste, those shepherds, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Did you catch that? They came with haste. It meant due diligence. It actually means a ma- magnetic pull or draw. What was it that made these Shepherds leave everything behind in such a hurry. What is there about this Jesus that still draws the thousands of people, even several thousand years later? Years after his life and his death, men and women, young and old, black and white, red and yellow, still have a desire and are drawn to have an experience with Jesus Christ. From his birth until his death, his recorded life is read by untold millions every day. The book containing his true biographies called the Bible is still the best-selling book in the history of the world. Has a broken the record by selling over six or rather five billion copies. That's not including the multiplied billions of copies printed, distributed, and given away for free and in all different languages. 
Do you know where Jesus walked and talked 2,000 years ago is still one of the most visited religious sites in the world today? In 2017, 4 million tourists made a little journey to that place where Jesus had walked and had talked, which put $20 billion into the Israeli Israeli economy. The number one place that's visited in Israel today is what's called the birthplace of Christ. The same place that drew those shepherds in a real hurry. It was a little village called Bethlehem. And how this Jesus, this guy named Jesus, continues to draw people toward himself, although he's been gone for over two thousand years. What a mystery. We have the Gospels. It's four books. It's called the Synoptics, which means the same. It it, it simply means that four men, guided by the Holy Spirit, begin to draw portraits for us through their own eyes of what Jesus was all about. And when you read through the book of Matthew, you have 28 chapters And it presents Jesus as the lion out of the tribe of Judah, a lion roaring forth. When you read the 16 chapters that make up the book of Mark, he portrays Jesus as a servant, the one that submits to the will of the Father, obeys the Father, irregardless of the cost or the consequence. You pick up the the book of, of Luke, it's 21 chapters. And there he's presenting Christ as the Son of Man, a hundred percent man. John picks up the pen and he begins to draw a picture in his book. And he presents Christ as the Son of God, 100% God in the flesh. And so you have two genealogies of Christ in the Bible. You have the book of Luke, you have the book of John, And the book of Luke goes all the way back to Adam because he's showing you the earthly side of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the incarnation side that we pick up. And he presents him as the son of man, 100% man. And then John picks up the pen again and he presents the divine side, the son of God, the uh, deity side of Christ, the incarnation. And when you read the genealogy of Jesus in the book of John, he goes all the way back to Abraham, which is the spiritual seed with its beginning. Incidentally, he really goes back past John Wesley and John Knox and John Calvin and Johnny Appleseed and Johnny Carson and and back past John the Baptist and back past Abraham and back past Adam and back past everybody and everything and said, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things are made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Then he drops on down and he said, and that Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He put on a robe. He put on skin. He put on sandals. So Luke portrays the physical side, whereas John portrays the spiritual side. And all four of these gospels dovetail 
together to give us a biography of a man that has not been seen on earth with a human eye for over 2,000 years. And yet people from every direction, every country, from everywhere, from around the world, still are trying to find this man named Jesus. Now I suppose some think they understand why people are drawn to him. And uh, I, I suppose that they think what makes the difference And they would explain to you, and I ask you this morning, what do you think makes Jesus different that we would recollect all about him after 2,000 years? What would your response be? Some would probably say that it was his message. And he was a powerful preacher. He was an anointed preacher. He was a deep preacher. Jesus said his first sermon was repent, or you you will likewise perish. But did you know that Jesus wasn't the first one to preach repentance? You read through the Old Testament prophets, and they all talked about repentance. You say, well, Jesus demanded the blood. Well, Moses did in that tabernacle system 3,500 years before Christ was born. You say, well, he lived a clean life and he demanded a separated life. The Ten Commandments took care of that back in Exodus chapter 20. Did you know that John the Baptist, he preached repentance. He he preached the blood. He preached separation. He preached everything the Old Testament prophets had preached as he prepared a way. So it really isn't the message of Jesus that drew the crowd when you really think about it. Maybe your response would be that it was his miracles that drew the crowd. Really? Did you know that every miracle that Jesus performed in the New Testament had already been performed in the Old Testament? Think about it for a moment. Did you know the Old Testament priests, they anointed people who had leprosy and they were cleansed and they were healed according to the book of Leviticus. Those with barren wombs were caused to have babies. Did you know that in the Old Testament, people were raised from the dead? Now, you might argue that Jesus walked on water, but in the Old Testament, there was an axe head that swam to the surface too. What about, what about the, uh, the, the plagues of Egypt? How bitter water was made sweet and how manna fell from heaven and a rock produced water. You can look at a serpent and be cleansed and and be healed. What about the parting of the Red Sea or the parting of the Jordan River? What about the walls of Jericho? What about the sun that stood still while Joshua fought a battle? I thought about the widow woman that only had a handful of meal and how the crews of oil never ran dry. Somebody said, well, Jesus fed 5,000. But if you'll turn to 2 Kings chapter 4, it talks about 100 priests to feed with only 20 loaves. And by the time you get through with the chapter, they'd all received a loaf. I thought about Elisha, how powerful, and how they had buried him. And some man had died, and they just threw him into the tomb. And when his body hit the bones of Elisha, he jumped up alive and walked off and went home. That story's bad to the bone, isn't it? 
What about, what about the resurrection? Three days and he rose. Well, what about Jonah in the belly of the well for three days? What about three Hebrew boys that walked around in a fiery furnace? What about Daniel in the lion's den? Actually, I don't think you can say it was the message of Jesus that drew people to him. I don't think you could say it was the miracles of Christ that drew mankind to him. Some might say it was his manners and his mannerisms and all that may have had some draw. I don't, I don't know. I know that they said, no, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Some might say it was his mode of dress. Jesus, he dressed in a conservative way. The Pharisees did that. I mean, they had long flowing robes and they were conservative and they had scriptures tied to the bottom of their robe and they prayed three times a day publicly. Uh, they, they avoided what we would call dark and sinful things, much like it really, it wasn't the message and it wasn't the miracles of Christ. So what is it that draws people from all over the world to this man that none of us have ever seen? Well, there were some things different about him than any other man that's ever lived or ever will live. And I'd like to point them out three things real quick like. First of all, I believe people are drawn to Christ because of the scope of his love. God so loved the world that he gave. Who did he give? He gave his son. And when we say the world, we're not talking about this mud ball that we call the earth. We're talking about the inhabitants. God so loved mankind with an everlasting love. It'll never change. It'll never be surpassed. Now, who among us can love somebody that has rejected us and cursed us? And why would we give our own son to die in their place when they were so flippant toward us? The Bible says, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. God loves us. God loves sinners. And you know that God's love is not limited to social standing, financial institutions, educational requirements, to our failures, to our faults, to our mistakes, our weaknesses, our personality, our family ties, our gender. We'll never cause the love of God to deviate or change toward us. His love is divine. Somebody said it reaches to the lowest valley. I think it reaches to the blackest hell just as well. It breaks the chains of addiction. It rescues those who are addicted, the love of God. A man by the name of Layman back in 1917 lost everything in a business deal. Broken, hopeless it seemed. He sat down with a piece of paper and he began to write some words and he titled it, The Love of God. When everybody else walked out of his life, God didn't walk out. So he wrote, The Love of God. Now, in those days in the church, every song had to have three verses. Must have been after that they wrote them with 10 verses and sang all of them over and over when I was a boy. I thought, I'll not live to see the last verse, son. But he only wrote two verses, and you needed three verses. And a third verse was not 
put on to this great song, The Love of God, till some years later, at a mental institution, workmen were getting ready to paint the wall, and as they washed it down so they could paint it, they found scratched into that plaster on that wall these words, and it became the third verse. Could we with ink the ocean fill, written in a mental institution? Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. I want you to know that the divine love of God brings out the best in all of us. I'll tell you, sin brings out the worst in mankind, but God's love brings out the best. If we could just get the love of God out, the communities get better, churches get better, people get better, nations become better, the love of God. In 2020, down in Orlando, Florida, they were having a race of the fastest dogs in the world. Multi-millionaires came with special dogs that had their hair all combed and brushed and shined and had their teeth cleaned and had their nails polished and some of these dogs were worth literally hundreds of thousands of dollars. Several dogs were worth over a million dollars. When they entered in, into the race, these purebreds, special dogs like greyhounds and dobermans and those kind, 116 had signed up, and then finally a couple showed up by the name of Ted and Krista. They had a little dog under their arm and about a four-pound female, whatever it was, Mutt. They wanted to enter into the race. And here's all these millionaires, people with their sense of aristocracy. Their nose pointed up toward the sky if it had rained, that it drowned. And, and they had all these dogs and they had the paperwork on them and the lineage and, and, uh, and all the genealogy and what a special dog they had. And here came this couple with this mutt. Somebody asked, where did you get the dog? He said, at a rescue shelter. How much did you give? $35. You're going to run it in the world's fastest dog race here in Orlando? Well, we thought we would. And they lined them up on the, on the starting line, and, and when the flag was dropped, 117 dogs took off, but none of them ran like this dog that they had named Feeling, meaning wolf. They said it was one of the ugliest dogs they'd ever seen. Its hair went in all different directions. It was such a crossbreed, its eyes looked like they were crossed. The legs were so skinny, they looked like they would break. But when it took off, it left 116 purebreds behind. And it crossed the finish line faster than any dog had ever crossed that finish line before. Uh, going at 6.346 seconds, 100 yards. That's over 32 miles per hour at full speed. And walked away with the title of the fastest dog in the world becoming worth about a million dollars. When Ted and Krista walked away, they were stopped and they were interviewed and they were asked, where again did you get this dog? Said at a dog shelter. It was waiting to be for the gas chamber. It's gonna be put to death. We saw it and we liked it. They said, what in the world about it that you liked? We liked it because nobody else liked it. 
We saw something in that dog that needed our home and our love. We bought it for $35 and took it home. They said, well, how did you train it? What did you do to make it the fastest dog? And they said, we didn't do anything. We just loved it. And in loving this mud, it brought the best out of it. I'll tell you, when God found me, I was at a rescue shelter. But he saw something in me that nobody else seemed to see, and it brought the best out of my life, and it brings the best out of your life. Just a bunch of nobodies till God got a hold of us and turned us around. What is it that draws men and women to Christ? It's the scope of his love. Nobody else has ever loved me quite like Jesus. But I give you a second reason why the world is drawn toward this man named Jesus. Three of the largest religious groups in the world claim him as their leader. Why? Because of the sacrifice of this lamb. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the scripture says that lamb slain in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. It was John the Baptist who said, Behold the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. This world that God so loved, he proved it by sending his only son to remove sin from the souls of those who had been stained and ruined. God's holiness and justice demands a spotless sacrifice. Had to be sinless. Any of you remember reading over there in Genesis about Abraham and Isaac going up a mountain? And as they're going up this mountain carrying these things for an offering to God, that this 18-year-old son named Isaac turned to his dad and said, we got the wood and we got the fire. But Dad, where's the sacrifice? And he's being tied right now and laid out on this altar. And the fire is burning. Dad, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham with a heavy heart, but by faith he turned. And he, he didn't say God will provide himself a lamb. He said God will provide himself. You got to read it again. God will provide Himself, Mount Moriah, very same mountain that in the New Testament is called Mount Calvary for your information. Very same mountain. Thousands of years before, Isaac about to be offered, and the old dad said, God's going to provide himself. In other words, son, the day's coming when God's going to take the place of mankind. You and I are the ones that should have been strapped down. We're the ones that should have been killed, but God's going to provide himself. You can get him to walk away set free and he's dying in your place. I believe that's the reason people are going after Jesus today. The Bible said that he loved us while we were yet sinners. He died for us. While we were yet on dope, he died for us. While we were yet vomiting in our drunkenness, he died for us. While we're out chasing around and becoming unwed and getting involved in deep things, he died for us. While we were rebelling, the Bible said that he died for us. Thank God for the lamb. It was God himself who took on the form of flesh coming through a girl named Mary. 
a virgin girl. But also being the son of God through the divine incarnation of himself coming to pay the sin debt. Do you know it was the blood of the lamb that purchased freedom for the children of Israel back in the Old Testament? Bondage. The blood of the lamb, it brought atonement in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. But it was the blood of Calvary that makes the vow clean. I challenge you to read through the book of Hebrews where you'll ever find one time where it says that the blood of goats and sheep ever covered the sins of the people. Never washed away their sin. But I want to tell you when the Lamb of God that John talked about died at Calvary, there's no more need of sacrifice. Didn't need any more blood. Didn't need any more offerings. No more atonement. We're under redemption now. Not atonement, which means we've been bought back. Our sin debt's been paid. That means that we're in the family of God. And it's through Jesus dying on the cross. Now, I don't know if you like studying the Old Testament and studying typology and and going through the tabernacle system. Long, rectangular, tent-made structure. It had a holy place, and then on the inside, on in, was the most holy place. And on the outside, it was where judgment was. There was a brazen altar. The priests would, would take a lamb, and all the people would come to that priest, and they'd confess their sins, and he would wear their names over his heart and, and over his forehead and what their sins were. And when he would go in, he would represent their sins to God, but he had to get in, and he had to have a sacrifice. He had to be made nigh by the blood or he couldn't go in where God was or he'd be struck dead. And so he'd take a lamb and he would slay that lamb out of here at the brazen altar. The blood would spill and he'd take a dish and he'd catch the blood. And then he would go over to a basin and he had to wash himself from performing that gory, bloody sacrifice. Now he takes this dish of blood and he goes through the tent door and into the tent. On one side is a table of showbread, and on the other side is the uh, golden candlesticks. In front of him is the incense altar. And then he comes up against a veil. If he spills that blood going in, he'll be killed immediately. He cannot go in without the blood. He's made nigh by the blood. He's not good enough. It takes the blood. And so he's very careful not to fall, not to trip. In fact, the matter, there's bells and pomegranates around the bottom of his robe. So, and a rope tied to his ankle just in case they don't hear anything. They don't hear any bells ringing. They know he was struck dead. And they'll pull on that rope and drag his dead body out. It's a big day. It's a day of atonement. This is it. And to get in there, there's a, a veil. That veil was tall. It was wide. It was... 16 inches thick. It was made by the Israelites and they had uh, embroidered on it two cherubims, thick. Fact of the matter, 32 oxen could not pull it apart. And on the other side of that veil is where God was and on this side is where man is. On the other side where God is, there's a Ark of the Covenant, on top of the mercy seat. He has to 
pour that blood over that mercy seat to see if they'll find mercy. Inside the ark is uh, Aaron's budding rod, and there's a, 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 a pot of manna, and uh, there's the Ten Commandments. And as I read through all of that furniture, I was amazed to find suddenly that I noticed a piece of furniture missing. Never noticed it before. You got tables and you, you got an ark and you got a mercy seat and you got golden cherubims and you got embroidered cherubims and you got table showbread and golden candlesticks, but there's a piece of furniture that was missing and it's not there. Why don't somebody preach about it? Why didn't they tell me in Bible college? Piece of furniture's not there. What is it? There's no chair. There's no chair for the priest, the high priest, to sit down on. Why is there not a chair? Because the work of the high priest never ends. Another year, another sacrifice. Another year, another lamb. Another year, people seeing more blood spilled. Got to approach God again, see if there'll be any forgiveness. No chair. Work never ended. But when Jesus Christ died and took his blood and went to the holy of holies of heaven and spilled the blood out, the next thing that he did, did you see? He goes over and he sits down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Why? Because his work is done. There's going to be no more blood spilled. There'll never be another sacrifice for humanity. There'll never be any of these forms of going through. Jesus, once and for all, paid the price at Calvary. That's why people are drawn to Christ. He's the sacrificial lamb that died for our sins. I'll give you a quick close here. Notice the spirit that he left behind. He said, if I go away, I'll send the comforter. He's called the Holy Spirit, called the Holy Ghost. He empowered the church there at the day of Pentecost, blew through like a mighty wind, and he set people literally on fire, and he wants to dwell in the heart and life of every believer. I want to dwell with you, but I shall be in you, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Why anybody would fight that, I do not know. He comes without a body, and you have the only body that he can dwell in. And I want to point out something to you that maybe, maybe you've not noticed. John chapter 6, verse 44, never forget it. Here's what Jesus said. No man cometh to the Father except the Spirit draw him. Talking about the draw. Lest the Spirit draws him. You can't get to God. Unless the Spirit draws you. You don't have enough knowledge. You don't have enough wisdom. You don't have anything going for you except Jesus died at Calvary. And he sent to us and left behind the Holy Spirit on earth to bring you to the Father. When he has come, he'll begin to convict men of sin. He'll begin to show you your lifestyle is wrong. That you're not good enough and you need a Savior. And he points out Jesus Christ is that Savior and the only way you can get through to the Father is through Jesus Christ. He's that doorway, and it takes the Holy Spirit to draw us. Otherwise, we just come and sit in a church and have an open Bible or open iPhone or whatever it is that we use, and we'll just sit there with no hope and without Christ. But if the Spirit of God comes and begins to tug, 
It changes everything. That's why people are drawn to Christ. He left the spirit behind for these last 2,000 plus years to pull on the human heart. It's kind of the implication there is dropping a bucket into a deep, deep, dark well. You, anybody here ever got your water out of a well, depended on a well for your water, and you had to use a bucket? Anybody? Is that before our time? Several? So you know you can drop a bucket all the way down on a rope, and it's just going to ride on top of the water? You can't get water. It's just going to float on top of the water. So what do they do? They put a smaller rope attached to the side of that bucket, and when they drop that bucket down into that deep, dark well... They pull or tug at that small rope and it tilts the bucket and water begins to run into it. And then it becomes heavy and it's full and when they're pulling it up out, it's splashing over. And you can drop the bucket all you want, but without that tug, it'll come up empty. And I'm glad some years ago at nine years of age, in a dark pit of a boy realizing For the first time I was lost. I'm glad that God dropped a bucket down in the depths of my heart and I felt a tug from another world that turned me upside down and when I came up bubbling and foaming and running over with salvation. My life has never been the same. That's why I follow him. That's why all these years with disappointments and problems and loads and and reverses in life, I keep following after him because I still feel that tug. That's why they asked the little boy about the kite. And he's standing there with a string. What do you do? I'm flying a kite. I don't see any kite. It's up there in the clouds. How do you know? He said, I can feel the tug. And if you feel that tug, that's the Holy Spirit. And any time you feel that, may I remind you, you'll not always feel that tug. My spirit shall not always tug at the human heart or strive with mankind. That tells me when you're thirsty and you need a good drink and you're looking for the hope of survival, you better respond to that tug of the spirit and get someplace and open your heart to God and invite him in because you can't get to God on your own. Jesus said, unless the Spirit draweth him. That's not Nazarene theology. It's not Methodist. It's not Pentecostal. It's not Church of the Brethren. That's the gospel. That tug. If you don't have that tug, there's not a preacher in the world that can help you. But if you got that tug and you don't respond to that tug, Nobody else can help you either. Is he tugging at your heart this morning? Father, thanks for being a part of the Voice of the Nazarene. Visit us every Sunday at 9 a.m. with BNC's pastor, Ray LaSalle. For more information regarding BNC, visit BusirisNazarene.org.